Hi there, this is Darren Spoo, pastor at First Baptist Church in Tulsa, and welcome to our weekly message podcast. We would invite you to join us in person Sunday morning at 8.30 and 11 o'clock in downtown Tulsa, or check out our webpage at tulsafbc.org. God bless you, and have a great week. So a couple of weeks ago, I needed to take a trip to Fort Worth to see a friend. He wasn't doing well. And so I had some Southwest Airline points, so I cashed those in, got a ticket, uh, flew down to Love Field, rented a car, and drove over to see my friend in Fort Worth. I didn't know how long that would take. I'd planned to stay there all day, so, but I managed to do everything that we needed to do that morning. So uh, on my way driving back to Love Field, I go, you know, I've got a friend in Dallas that I haven't seen in years. I'm just going to reach out to him and see if he's free for coffee. And I reached out to him. He said, sure enough, I'm free. So as I'm driving across the DFW area, I said, I'll, I'll call you when I'm 20 minutes out. So, so I got through Arlington, was making my way over to Dallas, called my friend. I said, I'll be there in 20 minutes. And no sooner had I hung up, but I hit a toll road. And because I'm in a rental car, I didn't want to go through all that rigmarole because it was just it was all automated. So I exited and Google re calibrated and, you know, remapped me. And so now I was making a little progress and it says I'm 20 minutes out. I hit another toll road. So I exit that. I'm still 20 minutes out. Then there was construction. Then there was a wreck. Then there was um, a Bucky's I really needed to stop at. (laughs) And for an entire hour, I was 20 minutes away from my destination. And I kind of mapped the way it worked out. And mostly it was because of toll roads. Here's my friend. I just kind of had to do this. And I finally got to him. Here's the deal. Since that event, that's become my metaphor. That's become my picture of becoming like Jesus Christ, of continuing to become until I completely become like Jesus, meaning sometimes it's just slow going. It's slow going to actually become like Jesus. There's detours, there's distractions. Sometimes we hit a bump in the road. It's just slow going, especially when it comes to two emotions, one of which we've taken the entire part of the first part of summer to look at, and anxiety. It's hard to overcome anxiety, but what I want you to hear, and this is my last word on anxiety, anxiety is not an absence of faith. Anxiety may be the very opportunity God has given you to grow your faith, to learn how to trust Him more when you feel like it least. So the second part of summer, we're going to deal with another emotion, and this one is slow going too, dealing with anger. Now, I mapped out this teaching series over a year ago, and I listed off my reasons for wanting to teach about anger, and if nothing else in the last year, it has become more relevant and not less. Here's my top three reasons for wanting to talk about this emotion called anger. Number one. We live in an always angry culture, don't we? We live in a culture where it's expected of you not only to be informed, it's expected of you to be indignant about any number of issues. And so because of that, we live now in an always angry culture. Second reason, and I don't know that Christians, we fully realize this, We are called to live differently in our world. We are called to live in a way that's markedly different from the rest of culture, and sometimes I don't know if we fully realize that. 
And I promise I'm not going to harp on social media too much, but I see the things that Christians post on social media and non-Christians, and it's hard to tell the difference. In other words, I don't know if we're fully aware that we're supposed to be different. And then here's my third reason. If we're aware we're supposed to be different, I don't think we understand really how. How are we supposed to be different from this always angry culture that we seem to be living in? So, when I do premarital counseling with folks, every now and then I'll have a couple tell me this. They'll say, I never saw my parents disagree. And I say, well, you weren't paying attention. <laughs> okay, really. I think it's, it's a sad thing when parents don't disagree in front of their kids because parents, I want you to get this, and we've not been perfect parents over the years, but we have disagreed in front of our children quite frequently because we do it well. The sooner that I admit my wife is right and I am wrong, that's it. It's the disagreement's over, right? But really, over time, Paula and I have learned how to disagree in a fair way. We don't call each other names. We don't attack one another. We work the issue. We don't raise our voices. We want to model in front of our kids, here's how you disagree and still love one another. In our culture, we're lacking that example. We're, we're lacking somebody to say, here's how you can be angry but not lose your Christianity, right? But actually, we do have that person. His name is Jesus Christ. So we're going to do a lot of stuff today. We're going to define anger. We're going to look at some good characteristics of what anger looks like. But mostly, we're going to set up Jesus as our model of what it means to do anger well. And let me go ahead and footnote it here right now. Anger itself is not a sin. Anger is an emotion. And it's what we do with that emotion, whether it becomes something constructive or destructive, only when anger starts destroying does it become a sin. This is just an emotion, and I would say it's a God-given emotion that we need to steward well, and Jesus is our example on how to do that. So I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, either paper copy, electronic device, whatever you have, go ahead and go to Mark chapter 3. While you're turning there, I want to set this up. Mark gives five conflict stories between Jesus and the religious establishment of his day. Starting in chapter 2, verse 1, all the way from chapter 3, verse 6, where we're going to end today, there were five accounts of Jesus coming into conflict with the Pharisees, the religious experts of his day. And each one kind of builds on another. The temperature in the room seems to be going up until finally the apex, the crescendo, the climax is in this scene that we're about to look at. Which, by the way, this is not all different from the culture that we live in right now, where anger is just continuing to ramp up until somebody's going to pop, right? That kind of seems to be the trajectory of this. So let's look at chapter 3, verse 1, and we're just going to reflect as we go through this, this scene from the life of Jesus. Another time... Jesus went into the synagogue, and there was a man with a shriveled hand that was there. Let me set this up. Jesus is in the synagogue at Capernaum. Some of you have been there with me. You can still visit this synagogue today and stand where Jesus stood and, and listen where he taught. This is where this scene happens in Capernaum, and it says there was a man with a shriveled hand. So this man, tradition says, was a stonemason. He was a plasterer. 
He's somebody who worked with both hands. And it seems, tradition tells us, that he got wounded on the job. There was no OSHA protecting him. There was no workers' comp. He was out of a job. And this hand that was wounded had become atrophied over time. And most likely had slipped into poverty, he and his family. So he was there. He can't work. He can't provide for his family. A man with a shriveled hand was there. Verse 2, some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. Now, we'll hear in just a minute these were the Pharisees. But here's a really good point just in passing. These Pharisees show up at the synagogue looking for something to make them angry. Listen, if you're looking for something to make you angry, you will find it. You will find it. Maybe that's the most important thing you need to hear this morning is how, what are you looking for in life? Jesus walks into the synagogue to encounter God. The religious leaders walk into the, the synagogue looking for something to make them angry. So, when you go home, what are you looking for? Are you looking to love your family or are you looking for something to make you angry? If you're looking for it, you'll find it. When you go to work, are you just waiting for somebody to say the wrong word to you? Are you looking for someone to make you angry? How'd you walk in here this morning? I know a lot of people carry baggage about the church, and so you might walk in just looking for something to be critical about. I have no doubt you will find it. Is your bent, are you looking for something to make you angry, or in life, are you seeking God? So these Pharisees, they walk in, they look, they're looking for something looking for a way to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Let me set this up just a bit. God did say in one of the Big Ten Commandments, take a day off. Have one day in seven where you rest. And by the way, I think we all need to live according to that commandment today. We are meant to work, and we are meant to rest. But what the Pharisees had done is they had piled on all these rules about exactly what is work and and what is not, and among them was what doctors could do. Doctors could keep somebody from getting worse, but they couldn't make them better. In fact, they could mitigate pain, but they couldn't heal on the Sabbath, and that's for doctors as well as those who have the gift of miracles. Jesus, you shouldn't heal on the Sabbath. What's the problem with this man coming back tomorrow to be healed? By the way, it's not that they were debating could Jesus heal. It's about when he was doing it. Jesus, what's it going to hurt if you just wait till tomorrow? Well, that makes perfect sense unless you're the man with the shriveled hand. And so they were seeing what he would do. Would he break, not the commands of God, but would he break their understanding, their traditions around the commandments of God? So Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up here in front of everyone. And Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. So why does Jesus have this man stand up in front of the crowd? I believe he does it for two reasons. One was for the Pharisees' sake. He was trying to get through to the Pharisees to maybe even redeem them. Listen, here's what will make you angry. Issues will make you angry. But a lot of that anger will fade away when you stop seeing issues and you just start seeing individuals. Sometimes it's policies that make us angry. 
Well, instead of looking at the policies, why don't you look at people? And I believe what Jesus is doing is he's saying, I know you have all these traditions about the Sabbath, but would you just look into the face of this man? Now, here's what I believe. I believe that Jesus was successful in getting through to at least one or two of the Pharisees. Here's why. Here in a minute, at the end, it's they will plot to kill Jesus. I believe one or two of the Pharisees went off with this group, and as they started to plot to kill Jesus, they said to themselves, this isn't right. He just healed a man. Whether it goes against my tradition or not, there's some power here that I can't explain. And I believe some of the Pharisees defected over to Jesus this time, and that's how they knew about the plot. I think he did get through to some of them. But to others, they just doubled down. But Jesus has them stand up because he wanted to try to get through to them. Would you see people, would you see individuals and not just your issues? But I believe Jesus also had this man stand up because he wanted to be absolutely clear where he stood. So get this. How can one so misunderstand the commands of God that it would cause them not to help someone who is in need? As we feel the temperature in the synagogue begin to rise, I think that's what really gets to Jesus. How can you so misinterpret the commands of God that it prevents you from helping somebody who has need? So, again, anger itself is not a sin, it's an emotion. And in what we do with that emotion, whether it's constructive or destructive, is up to us. When that anger begins to destroy, that's when it becomes a sin. And so what we're going to see from this point on in this account is Jesus and the Pharisees doing this. We're going to see them fork in the road about how they deal with their anger. And if we're looking for an example of how not to do anger, that's the Pharisees. And how to do anger, that's Jesus. So Jesus had him stand up. Verse 5, Jesus looked around at them in anger. By the way, if Jesus is the sinless human being and he was angry, then anger itself is not a sin. Jesus looked around in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Now, here's where I want to deal with the definition of anger. And you all know that emotion. You know what it feels like. Don't you? You know what it feels like, don't you? Okay. Yes. <laughs> Thanks, Lori. Two percentage points off your tithe. Thanks for doing that, yeah. You don't know what that feeling is, but, but it's hard to articulate what, what exactly is anger. Here's what, here's what makes us angry. Anger is there's something wrong with the world, and it matters. Something's not the way it should be, and it matters. And so my loose definition of anger is it's the unfairness emotion, that you sense something is unfair, something's not right, and that matters to you, and you respond emotionally, you respond spiritually, you respond physically to that. It's the unfairness emotion, and so we can be angry at people when we see them operating in ways that are unjust. We can respond that way to circumstances. Sometimes we even get angry at ourselves because we're not doing what we think that we're capable of. And so anger is that unfairness emotion that something is wrong with the world, and it matters. 
So Jesus here becomes angry. He heals the man. Verse 6, the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. So we see two parties that are angry here. We see the Pharisees and how they become destructive. We see Jesus and how he uses his anger in a constructive way. Jesus is the one we ought to model ourselves after, but I'm afraid too often we fall into the camp of the Pharisees and we become destructive in the way that we use our anger. So here's why I've chosen this title, Good and Angry. I actually stole it from an author named David Paulison. He's written a wonderful book. I, I try to read five or six books on any topic we talk about. And David Paulison wrote this book called Good and Angry, and I stole the title. But is it stealing if I tell you I'm stealing? <laughs> is, is it stealing if I footnote and give credit? I'm, I'm doing a shout out to his book, but I like this title because it can be understood in two ways that you're going to live your whole life just good and angry or to live your life good even though we experience anger. So here's what I want to do in the time we have left this morning is I want to look at how Jesus did anger in a good way. And I see three criteria here. And some of this comes from all my reading, but some of this just comes from just observing Jesus here. And with each one of these criteria, I want to put a little question with it so you can do. You're not looking at other people. You're not trying to make them act this way. You're saying, here's, here's what I need to work on, okay? First, Jesus was angry for the right reasons. If we're going to be angry, let's make sure it's for the right reasons. Now, let me give you two accounts of two slow drivers uh, one, I was driving across Texas a couple of years ago, three kids in the back seat. I think one of them was even still in a car seat. We're coming out of some small little West Texas town, and the speed limit had gone up to 55, but the driver in front of me was still doing 45, but he was also swerving across the center line, and he'd come back, and he'd swerve across the center line. Followed him for a few minutes, and it was obvious that he was impaired probably by alcohol. So I called 911, got the police dispatch on the line. I said, listen, I'm at road mile marker such and such. There's a drunk driver here. I was angry because this person could kill someone. And I've got three small kids in the back seat. So this is also personal. This, this is wrong. So I call the police. They show up. They take care of the situation. We go on. Second slow driver was a couple of weeks ago coming in on the Broken Air Expressway on a Monday morning. I'm trying to get to work, and this person is in my way. I think it was one of you. Now, maybe I should have left earlier. I don't know. Yeah. But somebody's driving down the Broken Air Expressway, not doing nearly the speed that I think they ought to do, and I'm angry at them. Okay. Now, I want to take those two and, and talk about being angry for the right reasons. Listen, we need to ask ourselves this question. Does this really matter, or is this just about me? Before you get angry... Does this really matter, or is this just about me? Now, that first driver, it matters because this person could kill somebody. The second driver, it was just about me. It's not an injustice. It's just an inconvenience, and I need to learn to separate those two. And so that's the big question here when it comes to dealing with anger. Does this matter, or is this just about me? So I debated all week long whether to use this next account, but I think I'm going to. We're down the rabbit hole anyway. Let's go. A little bit of background. 
Southern Baptists historically have not been friendly to women in leadership. Historically, they say women should not serve as pastors. Personally, I disagree with that. I'm just speaking personally. I think the gospel is such urgent work. We need every person on the field. If they want to serve, let's let them serve. That's my view. Historically, Baptists, though, have not been friendly to that view. And to be totally honest, I can see where two good-willed people can read the same Scripture, pray to the same God, and come to two different conclusions on that matter. Could I encourage you, wherever you stand, be generous. Be generous because there are two ways of looking at that. So that's the background. Then we come up to this year's SBC convention, Southern Baptist Convention. And some of you know what we're dealing with right now. That there have been pastors who have been predators in churches for a lot of years. And they've moved from church to church. And there's been a little bit of a cover-up to cover up the dealings, the sexual misconduct of these pastors. So at the convention, it was talked about, you know, what do we do? Well, every person, every church is independent and autonomous. And there's nothing we can do, blah, blah, blah. Can I say blah, blah, blah again? Blah, blah, blah. You know, we have to let each church manage this situation. But before the convention ended, there was a motion to point out a specific church, a large influential Southern Baptist church that had dared to ordain a woman as a pastor. And the movement was made to say, if a church ordains a woman as a pastor, we need to kick them out of the convention. And I stand back and I look at those two issues and I go, how tone deaf can we be? that here we're willing to kick out a church because they might ordain a woman, but all these churches over here, what we need to say is if you hire or if you harbor a sexual predator, you are out. There is no room for you here. But instead we focus on, and you can do that if you want to. What really matters here? Here's an issue over here, ordaining women to leadership. Honest people can disagree on that, I believe. But there is no room for disagreement about somebody who would take advantage of somebody in a weak position. Is this just about me or does it really matter? And it's those things that matter that we should be angry about. There's a difference between injustice and just inconvenience. We see Jesus here get angry at stubborn hearts. How can you so misinterpret the commands of God that you're not willing to help an individual you see right in front of you? This matters. Second criteria of getting angry. Not only getting angry for the right reasons, but getting angry with the right reaction. As followers of Jesus, listen to me. Anger does not excuse us to act any way we want to. In fact, you cannot use ungodly means to accomplish godly ends. And so as we react in anger, here's the big question I would ask you. Is your anger, are you using it as a tool or as a weapon? Would you just consider that question for just a moment? And by the way, I think that's a great way of looking at all of our emotions. Am I using anger as a tool or as a weapon. So here I see Jesus using his anger as a tool. And what was accomplished at the end of the day? The healing of a man. Let's not overlook him. He went home, and the next day, the first day of the week, he was able to get back to work. And he was able to provide for his family. 
And Jesus had made that possible. He had used his anger to produce something good. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were going to use their anger to destroy. And they were going to try to destroy Jesus. As important as what Jesus does is also what he doesn't do. Notice he doesn't try to explain himself. Notice he doesn't try to convince those that are there that he's right and they're wrong. He just lets his actions speak for themselves. I wonder if we were really focused on using our anger as a tool. You know what? We don't need to do a lot of explaining. Here's the deal. When it comes to explanations, uh, for your friends, no explanation is needed. For your enemies, no explanation will do. Jesus knows that if they're not going to be convinced by their, this example, there's nothing he's going to say to change their mind. So he uses his anger as a tool, not as a weapon, and he moves on. Here's the last big thing and the last big question. So getting angry for the right reasons, okay? Does this matter or is this just about me? Getting angry with the right reactions, using our anger as a tool, not as a weapon. Here's the third thing. Making sure our anger bears the right results. Making sure our anger is resulting in something good. So let me ask you, and, and, and here's kind of the question I've paired with that. It's, I actually stole this. I'm stealing a lot of things today. Pablo Coelho, he says this, the world is changed by your example, not your opinion. The world is changed. That'd be a great banner on your Facebook feed. The world is changed by your example, not your opinion. And so when we talk about the right results of anger, are you willing to offer your example or are you just spouting off your opinion? The world is filled with plenty of opinions. But what we lack is good examples. So when it comes to what anger produces, would you look at just a moment and what it's producing in you? Listen, anger is a God-given emotion. And in fact, I think anger is proof that we are made in God's image because throughout the Scripture, God experiences anger. Guess what? We're made in God's image. We will experience anger as well, but it's an experience, not an identity. You will never see it said in the Scripture that God is anger. What does it say? God is love, right? And so often we take this experience of anger and we make it our identity. Do people know you as an angry person? If they do, that is not a fruit of the Spirit. It's not on that list of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, anger. It's not there. It's not it. Make sure that anger is an experience and not your identity. Because while God experiences an anger, that is not His identity. Second, would you look at what your anger produces in others around you? Your anger has gotten out of hand if it is destroying your relationships with other people. If anger is causing you distance, disruption in those relationships, that is not God-honoring. You're using your anger as a weapon and not as a tool, and that can change. We are called to be light in a dark place. Here's what I really believe. I believe this has been teed up for us. 
that if we want an opportunity to act like Jesus Christ and to show the light of the gospel to the world, we could not be given a greater opportunity than right now. That in an always angry culture, we model things like love and joy and peace, which I believe is what people truly crave. I want to read you something by Dionysus. He was a pagan turned Christian about 300 years after Jesus. He was a leader in the church of Alexandria. And a plague swept through his congregation. It swept through the church. And here's what Dionysius wrote. Listen to these words. Most of our brethren, most of our fellow brothers and sisters in Jesus were unsparing in their exceeding love and brotherly kindness. They held fast to each other. They visited the sick fearlessly and ministered to them continually, serving them in Christ. And they died with them most joyfully, taking the affliction of others, drawing the sickness from their neighbors to themselves, and willingly receiving their pains. But with the heathen, everything was quite otherwise. They deserted those who were sick. They fled from their dearest friends. They cast them out in the streets when they were half dead, and they left the dead unburied like refuse. And here's what one scholar wrote in response to Dionysus' words. Listen to this. When the life of Christians is recognizably different from the life of the world outside, then no tricks are needed to attract people. I want you to hear that again. When the life of Christians is recognizably different from the life of the world outside, then no tricks are needed to attract people. What if Christians became known as people who weren't angry all the time and become known as people who love God and love others consistently and with conviction and with compassion? So every week for this teaching series, I'm going to give you a memory verse. I, I can't tell you to memorize this, but I would encourage you to memorize this. If, if we want to have the Bible, let's keep your Bible in a place where it really matters. Right here. Right here. And so here's one verse to memorize this week, if you choose to. This is how God reveals himself. The Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. What I find interesting about this verse is a couple of things. Number one, this is used eight or nine times in the Older Testament. It's never quoted once in the New Testament. Here's why I think that is. These are words on the page. Jesus lived it out in his flesh. He is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. For those of us who are followers of Jesus in this room today, I would have you pay attention to that phrase, slow to anger. If that is who God is, that is who we ought to be as well. You'll get a kick out of this. That phrase, slow to anger, in the Hebrew, it literally translates, long in the nostrils. Isn't that good? When you get angry, what happens? You flare your nose, and your nose becomes short, or at least mine does. You don't want to see that look on me. You know, you shorten your nose when you're angry, but somebody who is slow to anger is long in the nostrils. So if you have a larger than average nose, you are like Jesus here in this room. Okay. Be long in the nostrils this week. 
That's who we're called to be as followers of Jesus. If you're questioning whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, or you know you're not, I would have you pay attention to that phrase, abounding in love. Some of you in this room today are angry at God. And you've been angry at Him for a long time. It's your unfairness emotion. Something in life that has happened to you that is unfair. I get that. But what I want you to hear is while you may be angry at God, He is not angry at you. And do you really want to go through the rest of your life being angry at somebody who loves you? And maybe today you drop your anger like an old, worn-out pair of armor. You just drop it off. Say, life has been unfair, but maybe I've been angry at God when I just don't understand what He's doing. In fact, that's my invitation for you today as we stand and sing about the love of God. There are some of you in this room that you're angry at God. If it's time for you to drop that, I encourage you to walk out these doors, walk over to our follow-up room. I'll be there not going to try to convince you, not going to try to explain anything, just ask that you, we'll pray together and ask that you let go of that anger and experience the God for yourself who's abounding in love. Now, we've heard all this stuff. We have our example. What do you say we live it this week? Let's be slow to anger and abounding in love. Let's stand together. Jesus, this is a lot to soak in, but what we need is not what we need is not character modification. What we need is transformation of our hearts and souls and minds. Forgive us when we just try to modify our behavior. You want to transform us. So Jesus, we put you in front of us this week as our example. And we want to be angry for the right reasons, with the right reactions, the right results. Help these questions continue to come through our minds, and especially would our anger be used as a tool for your kingdom and not a weapon for us just to get our way? Forgive us when we twist this emotion and have it create destruction in our relationships. I pray for healing, especially for those who are angry against you today. I pray they would let that slough off and discover the God who is slow to anger and abounding in love. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to our weekly message podcast. At the end of each worship service on Sunday morning, I offer a simple blessing, and I offer that blessing to you today. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you. And may God grant you peace, both now and forever. Amen.